Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Democrats will continue to control the Senate. Tom Bonnier is the CEO of Target Smart, and he will talk to us about how he correctly predicted the midterms. Then platformers Casey Newton will talk to us about Elon Musk and FTK's bankruptcy. But first, we have the host of MSNBC's The Lawrence O'Donnell Show. Help me welcome Lawrence O'Donnell. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Lawrence. Great to be here. I'm so excited to have you back. I wanted to have you back because we talked pretty recently and I want you to talk about like how you dealt with these midterms because I feel like ultimately there were very few people who were right and you were one of them. Well, you know, I was right in that in my open declaration that I didn't know anything. And perhaps the other thing I was right about was my belief that it is unknowable and that one will waste more of a life than anyone ever should by trying to figure out what's going to happen in congressional elections. I refuse, by the way, to use the term midterm elections. I think it's one of the great tragedies of political coverage in this country and political terminology, because it says to people out there, if they ever hear it, first of all, what it says to them is, what's that? You know, because the the kind of non-religious voter who's not really hip to these election schedules outside of the presidency hears that and they think it's something weird unrelated to them it might be city council or school committee or i don't know what it is you know and so we should just call them elections and if we just keep calling them elections and that we in this country have elections literally every year you know not necessarily where you live but you know we have elections wherever you live every two years, every two years. And there are some places where they have elections in the 
odd numbered years uh, for mayor and different things like that. And I never think about these congressional elections because the chessboard is way too big and it has become way too complex. It did not used to be complex for the you know, first 40 years of my life. The Democrats won the House of Representatives every single time to the point where none of us were aware that it was a contest. There wasn't an American who knew that it was optional for the Republicans to actually run the House of Representatives. We'd never seen a Republican speaker. And believe me, when they did win in 1994, they were shocked. The Republicans were shocked. Uh, and none of them knew how to handle it. None of them knew how to be chairman. None of them knew how to, you know, they obviously didn't know how to be speaker for, you know. And so it's just become way too complex to, to figure out. And so I, I ignore it and I, I don't attempt to figure it out. And I live with this, with a condition that apparently uh, the, the American kind of the anatomy of the American body politic uh, simply cannot bear. And that is the condition called suspense. And, you know, people pay good money to go into dark rooms and have the, curtain go up and or the screen illuminate and spend two hours in suspense in a theater. Uh, they pay for that sensation uh, because it is, among other things, so rare in the rest of our lives. You know, we have a neosynthesis now, we have polling, we have all of these things that have, you know, attempted to remove suspense as if it's an illness, as if it's something we simply physically can't bear. And, and so my only point of clarity on this or, or being in any sense right was in knowing that I couldn't know. Therefore, I also couldn't be surprised. So all these people are going, I'm really surprised that it's not a red wave. Well, they're surprised because they misspent their time for the previous year. And the most absurd way you can possibly use any ounce of mental capacity is to ever look at or refer to what they call the uh, generic congressional ballot poll <laughs> in, in which you get this thing that says, you know, the voters, 47% of voters want a Democratic Congress and 46% want a Republican Congress or something like that. Yeah. It's the most idiotic thing in the world, uh, especially if you at the same time, the people, you know, the people who, who play with this all year, these these pundits, you know, have in their, you know, Ten Commandments list, Commandment One, issued by House Speaker Tip O'Neill, who was from Boston, all politics is local. Right. You know, they believe that, right? Because Tip O'Neill said it, and he's a, he was a political god and a wise man and all that. And it absolutely appeared to be completely right. And oh, by the way, you know, that was the political commandment of life that enabled Tip O'Neill as speaker to have a Democratic majority that was so big, there was never, ever, ever a risk of any bill not passing the House of Representatives. Because you could have dozens of Democrats not vote for it, you know, because they're from Texas or Oklahoma and they're uncomfortable with it, and you'd still be able to pass it. And Tip understood that all politics is local and the guys from Oklahoma can't vote for this. We understand that. And so if all politics are local, what the hell are you doing with a poll that says 47% that says you know, want a, a Republican Congress? 
Exactly. Well, and it's funny because with Gretchen Whitmer, who won handily in a swing state and who is not being celebrated nearly as much as Ron DeSantis, who won in a state where there's almost no Democratic Party structure anymore. Right. But I just am thinking about that. People said the thing they loved about Big Gretch was that she was doing what they wanted in their state, you know, fixing roads and doing things that they wanted in Michigan. Yeah. And by the way, the same thing for DeSantis with the voters who voted for him. You know, he's, you know, putting, sending airplanes to Texas to fly people to Martha's Vineyard. They want that. You know, they, that's who lives there, you know, at least in that number. Right. I mean, there's a good 40 percent of Floridians who are horrified by it, you know, but uh, I, I think, you know, what the DeSantis proved in the current climate, and, and this, I suspect, is going to hold for a while there, uh, is that Florida is no longer a swing state. You can't really think about it that way. It's really a Republican state. And Michigan remains within the definition of a swing state, which makes it more impressive to win that way. You know, there are so many stories from Tuesday night of candidates who really like, I mean, Mandela Barnes, like he lost by one point. I mean, they Republicans were pumping millions of dollars into keeping a seat for Ron and on. I mean, like, I do think there are a lot of stories of like Democrats overperforming by large margins. Yeah. And what I have to say to Mandela Barnes, and this is something I'm actually hoping to do on the show and hoping he comes on and hoping Beto O'Rourke comes on and others uh, who came in second. What I want to say to them is thank you. Imagine a Wisconsin in which a strong Democratic candidate did not emerge to challenge what was, you know, a strong enough incumbent Republican running for election. That would have been just a, a disservice to democracy to not have that contest there. I've seen it. I, you know, when, when I worked in the Senate, you saw it all the time. You saw states where, you know, this candidate, this senator is so strong that, you know, it's going to be very hard to find an opponent. And I, we actually had that experience. Uh, I was working for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, New York, who, and the suspense with a Moynihan Senate campaign was always, was he going to win by 67 or 68%? And the Republicans knew that. And so my first year doing this, being involved at all, was his re-election campaign of 1988. And the challenge was finding an opponent. And there was this big list of big Republican stars who lived in New York, Henry Kissinger, uh, Jack Kemp, people like this, massive speculation in the press, someone named Rudolph Giuliani, who was then the U.S. attorney. And each one of them, one by one, dropped out because each one of them stared at it. They thought about it. They kind of wanted to do it. And they saw, oh, no, Moynihan will crush me. And so they dropped out. And we finally, you know, at the end of, you know, 20 names, ended up with someone. And and I remember feeling grateful that that someone stepped forward so that there would be this actual democratic process with, by the way, no suspense, uh, but he was going to get out there and argue, you know, the tax argument against, you know, the liberal Democrat and New Yorkers were going to have that uh, discussion and they were going to be able to cast those votes. And, um, and, and so, um, you know, imagine, imagine a Texas this year without Beto O'Rourke. Imagine a year without 
even hope, without even hope, you know, and there are so many uh, ways of living in, in the, that we go through in the course of our lives. The rarest way of living is as a winner. The most common way of winning is as someone who's not quite getting where you need to be. And for Beto O'Rourke to get up there a third time as statewide, knowing that, it, you know, if he loses this time, they're going to say, they're going to call him a loser. The national media is going to try to humiliate him in effect uh, because the national media despises losers unless they're named Trump. I mean, you think about you know, John Kerry, you go back to, you know, uh, Dukakis. Yeah, Dukakis. But John Kerry, you know, you go back to 2004. If you flip, you know, 60,000 votes in Ohio, John Kerry's president, but he was treated by the media as if he came in 90 points behind, you know, George W. Bush. Uh, as if he was this horrible loser to be banished from our site. And by the way, Democratic voters felt that way. People I knew, I could feel it, like they, they voted for him. And two weeks later, they never wanted to hear his name again. And so, you know, the losers to me have a certain kind of nobility that I just feel so warmly about and admiringly about, and I know I would never do it myself. I would never subject myself to that and subject myself to that possibility of being the loser. Uh, and these people do it and they do it for us and they do it for at minimum hope to give people a year of feeling hope instead of horror. Well, and also there is polling that shows that you do better in a state if you run a candidate, even if they don't win. Like it helps down ballot. Yes, and it's projectable. It's certainly within our imaginations, you know, that there will be, again, because there, there were until the 90s, right into the 90s, Democratic senators from Texas and Democratic governors of Texas, again, we can see how that can happen as the, as the demographics are moving there. But these Beto campaigns are helping lead to whoever the Democratic winner is statewide. Whoever that first Democratic winner is statewide in Texas will have built that victory on what Beto O'Rourke has been doing for years there. Yeah, that's a really good point and And I think really important. Talk to me about where we see things go from here now. Oh, you're asking for predictions. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the, <laughs> Sorry. All right. Never mind. I dropped out of that business. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, I, I, here's another thing about, about watching politics. There's kind of an optimal level of attention and it's, it's lower than most people realize. So I, as I, I said, I first got into this in 1988 because there was a Writers Guild strike in Hollywood and my screenwriting career at that point was about a year and a half underway. And suddenly I was the you know lowest ranking member in a striking Hollywood union. And I was pathetically available uh, to, to join a campaign, which was not my idea. I knew Senator Moynihan and his wife. His wife was the campaign manager and she just kind of asked me to come into the campaign and, and be the other guy. And I did it mostly as a, like a tourist, like I'll just, this would be fun to watch. Like I have no idea what this stuff is, right? But here's what I knew with absolute certainty every single day of 1988 and 1987. Michael Dukakis is never going to be president. 
There wasn't a single moment when I thought that, okay? Even when Michael Dukakis had an 18-point lead in the polls. I'm from Boston. He was my governor. I had what I thought were, I just had, I couldn't even explain it to you. I, I, I just had this feeling, right? And so what I had was the advantage of being an amateur. What I had was the advantage of never having been down there on the field and only watched this thing from way up high in the stands, you know, at the 50 yard line where you could just kind of see the whole thing. And I, I remember saying after that first year of my life, you know, in professional politics, that you have about six months. It's your first six months in politics when you know anything. And after that, you're going to know nothing. Because in your first six months in professional politics, you are them. You are one of the people who you're trying to convince. You are the voter out there. But once you've been professionalized, which takes about six months, then you have no idea how those people think. You spend the rest of your life guessing about how those people think because you're not one of them anymore. And so your, your optimal moment in this is taking it seriously enough to consume the basic news about it. But that first six months of really kind of watching it is your best. And after that, you're just kind of a, you know, a kind of, calloused old hack who's just kind of you know <laughs> piling one hack assumption on top of another hack assumption and some other hack you know at the bar in the new hampshire primary is telling you something you buy that and then, and then you go and talk about it on tv why did you think that dukakis would never win i just knew he wasn't a president this is great because there's no analysis to it there's nothing that that the experts say it's what the voters say Right. And so I would have sounded at the time and I would just insist, you know, to Senator Moynihan, you know, he was very disappointed that he didn't endorse Dukakis early, especially when Dukakis was way up in the polls, because it looked like there was going to be a Democratic president elected without his help. Right. And so he was very jealous that Bill Bradley, senator from New Jersey, had endorsed you know, Mike Dukakis early. So he was going to get to be secretary of state or something. And uh, and I was sitting there the whole time going, don't worry, he's not going to be president. He's not going to be <laughs> And it's like, and they go, why? I go, ah, he's not going to be president. You know, because it's like, you know, it was all that stuff that a voter sees, the cosmetics of him aren't right. You know, the, the other guy is taller. It's just, it's just raw, um, you know, voter imagery. And I liked Dukakis. And I liked him as a governor. I thought, you know, if you said to me he's going to be governor, I go, yeah, he's going to be governor. You know, Michael Dukakis's stated in writing high school ambition in his Brookline High School yearbook was to be governor of Massachusetts. That was achievable, but he couldn't get beyond that. Now, if you run that campaign again, I won't know what to think because I'm too close to all the professional analysis. You know, it's not like the stock market where you might maybe get rewarded by studying the companies even closer. It's much more of a gut thing, you know, the, the way politics works. And you lose your gut after a few months of professional study. So interesting, Lawrence. I'm really glad you came back. And I'm really glad like this is just sort of a very interesting way to think of all of this. And I really appreciate having you. Thank you. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. 
It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Today, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. When I first heard about it, I thought, it's about time. This makes sense. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in for savings. Let's say you, your spouse, or kids see the doctor or other medical provider. When your claims come in, HealthLock automatically renews them and flags any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. So you pay only what you owe. This is your money you're saving. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped members save more than $130 million. I get it. Medical billing errors can happen, but you should be able to pay with confidence. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tom Bonnier is the CEO of Target Smart. Welcome to Fast Politics, Tom. Yeah, thanks for having me here. We won the midterms. You and I. We did. Because we were right. And since we're never wrong, certainly never. Let's talk about that. Explain to us how you got it all right. (laughs) I I love this premise, by the way, even though I'm slightly uncomfortable with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. (laughs) But let's go. Let me say, I shouldn't say this. I should just lean into it. But I'm not a magician. You know, there wasn't any magic here. I'm not a super genius. I just followed the data and listened to the data. But I also question the data. And so, yeah, there's a lot of information out there. There's the voter registration data. There's the polling data. And I think everyone just kind of focuses on the polls primarily without a lot of context. And yeah, I mean, the short answer is I follow the data. I question it, especially when it came to the polls. Um, And the data was generally pointing in one direction. And it's exactly where we ended up. In fact, the only thing that wasn't was this flood of garbage Republican polls that we all looked at at the time and sort of acknowledged like, hey, 
these are garbage Republican polls. Then they got used in the averages. Yeah, they got thrown into 538, real clear politics. You know, I think a lot of people were frankly nervous because they're humans. They lived through 2020. 2020, 2016, man. That was right where the the needle went from 75 percent. Everything's going to be okay. to you're fucked. You know. Yeah, not great. That was not great. And so, like, we all remember that, or maybe we don't remember it. Maybe we've blacked out from our memory, but it's there. It was in there somewhere, and it was clear in how people were reacting to these things. Because now everybody's saying the polls were right. The polls were right. Well, if the polls were right, and the outcome is a Democratic victory, why was everybody expecting a Republican victory? Which is, you know, we'd have to bring a psychologist in for that. But yeah, follow the data. Okay. Who are the people who did the very partisan GOP polling in in late October? Trafalgar and who else? Trafalgar was uh, uh, the big one. There's insider, inside advantage. Okay. There was a whole flood of polls from pollsters who I'd never heard of. I've got to be honest. And I've... (laughs) MAGA one, two, three polls? Yeah. Yes. It would be like, I don't want to pick on kids. Please, let's pick. (laughs) There were two polling firms that are run by high school kids that were all over the averages. One of them... I know. I I know. I know. I do. I do worry. They'll get better. Next election, they'll be in college. Exactly. Hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, One of them was from my hometown, a school I didn't go to, but Phillips Andover. Oh, yeah. Eh, I don't feel so bad for those kids. Go ahead. (laughs) No reason to feel bad for them. They got a lot going for them. They'll be fine. They had some of the most Republican outlier polls. And then there was another one from a couple kids who were in high school. It wasn't like a high school project. They had some really bad polls. There were polls from a Canadian company that were very Republican. There were polls from a Brazilian company that were very Republican. Amazing. Um, WIC was another one that sort of popped up in this election and had a lot of outlier results. Never heard of them before. But if you go through, go on 538 and like look at the worst states, the biggest misses, which are like, you know, the Washington Senate race, New Hampshire Senate race, New York governor, New York AG. Right. New York AG, she won by like 73 percent. I mean, yeah. she won 73 percent of the vote, didn't she? Yeah. And and <laughs> I think it was Trafalgar. It was one of those who had a poll that showed that being like a margin of error race. Yeah. So those polls were not great, I think is the, the kindest way to put it. What I think is interesting is like clearly we're in an inflection point with pollsters. And, and the thing that I had thought about was like I had wondered when we were coming up into this election. Wait, I just want to actually point something out that's important about these polls in this race that is still being counted. But probably Lauren Boebert is going to win. There was a really good Democratic candidate who we actually had on this podcast and he had a lot of trouble raising money because he was shown to be a like a huge, you know, a kind of a candidate who couldn't win. And in fact, he really could have won. And, you know, he's maybe Bopert will win by a couple thousand votes, maybe less. Maybe she won't even win, maybe because they're still not done counting. But I'm using this to illustrate that these polls actually have real world implications. And I want to talk about that. Yeah, they do. And I've seen that. Look, you know, outside of Twitter, my day job is actually working with campaigns. We have a polling team ourselves, an analytics team, and we provide data to Democratic candidates, progressive orgs around the country. And so we see that impact 
it's maybe why I feel these things even more deeply is we saw that happening in races where there were bad polls out there. And we knew there were bad polls because you can look at the sample and you see like, well, gosh, this likely voter sample in this state is based on a notion that young people are just going to flee from the state. Right. They won't vote because there won't be any. Like literally there's a poll in Pennsylvania that came out a few days after the debate that was one night, two hour window poll that had Dr. Oz up by a couple points, right? That was the kind of thing we were dealing with. And we should have been able to look at those and say, this is nonsense. Forget about it. Doesn't get into averages. We're not going to talk about it. We're not as reporters going to go out and pretend like suddenly this race changed and start writing stories about why John Fetterman is losing. We won't do it, but we did do it. Right. And the Bobert race is a, a great example of one that wasn't on the radar at all. Though he was on this podcast. Yeah. And kudos to you because that's incredible. Because when you look at like that was a district that wasn't even in like the Cook ratings for like even like the likely Republican, whatever right. the thing is right behind safe, it just wasn't there. But I think like some of these higher profile races too, like Mandela Barnes, the fact is that's a one point race right now. It's we're talking about what, like a swing of 13,000 votes. And and he'd be winning that race. And you look at the polls and we saw how the polls changed the narrative in that race so dramatically where he was winning right after the primary. And then a few of these garbage polls come in and suddenly all the narratives are about, well, why is Mandela Barnes losing? It's crime. It's obviously the concern of crime and inflation. Let's write stories about crime and inflation. And so if you're a voter in Wisconsin, you're waking up every morning to stories about crime and inflation to fit the narrative to explain why Mandela Bar Barnes was losing. When you look at the poll averages there, it wasn't a huge miss, but it was a big enough miss where I think they had him losing by, you know, four points on average. The difference between someone losing or perceiving that they're losing by four or five points, it, if you're down four or five points, you're probably not going to win if you believe the polls. But in reality, those polls were wrong. He was down one. And I think there would have been a lot of more resources directed to that campaign. The news stories would have been much less negative. Uh, they would have been looking at, why is Ron Johnson the incumbent? Barely hanging right. on. And, and while they're spending, I mean, remember, Ron Anon got a humongous cash infusion because of his sketchy taxation of pass through, through companies. And, you know, there were a couple donors who just literally put the money they saved in taxes into his campaign. And, and by the way, Ron and his kids trust fund saved a lot of money on taxes, too. I mean, just completely yep. as sketchy. And I say this as someone who, you know, myself has been a beneficiary of like familial largesse, as we say. And I am just like furious. I mean, it is so corrupt. I mean, you can't just change the taxes so they benefit you. No, <laughs> but he but, but, but he, he could. did. <laughs> he could and he did. And now he has six more years to try. Yeah. Well, the, the lesson we learned there, if you can create this sort of perception of inevitability driven by bad polls. Um, then you're going to be in better shape. And I think that's really unfortunate. And I think the people who are saying that the polls are right, generally what they're doing is like, well, yeah, if you look at it from about 100 miles away or 40,000 feet in the air, yeah, big picture, they say, well, the polls said, yeah, the Senate was going to be close. Though, right. to be fair, the models did not predict the 51-seat 
you know, a Democratic pickup, uh, an actual gain. And that's maybe where we'll end up. That's a, a, a possible outcome. So, But the reality is campaigns don't engage at the 40,000-foot level. And donors don't either. I think that's the most important point. And can we have confidence in the polls at the micro level, at the state-by-state level now? No, we can't. Look at the Senate races, and a third of the competitive Senate races had polls that where the error was greater than four and a half points. And so the problem is that error is not predictable. So in 2024, sure, the average error was four points and people say that's not bad. But you don't know which... 2022, you mean? Uh, yes, sorry. You, you don't know which... I'm, I've get, I often call 2020 2000. It all runs together at this point. But the problem is you don't know which are the third of states that are going to be these massive outliers. And so if you don't know which, how can you have confidence? Should Democrats have followed the polls and put tons of money into Washington state for Patty Murray? Thank God that didn't happen. But some amount of money went in there because of bad polls, because they're only bad polls. Again, New Hampshire is a great example of that, too. Yeah, New Hampshire is a great example. I mean, that is, you know, I was watching on Tuesday morning when I woke up ready for a bloodbath, you know, filled with dread, I thought to myself, if Democrats can hold New Hampshire, it won't be a bloodbath. And, you know, not only did Democrats hold New Hampshire, but she was not going to lose. And it just is so shocking to me how awful out of these polls were. Yeah. But again, if you had actually followed the data and and by the data, I mean, not just the polls. And in fact, very little the polls. (laughs) But but if you looked at what happened in Kansas and then you looked at the gender gaps in voter registration around the country after Kansas, after Dobbs, as we were seeing and we were reporting on and you were lifting this up consistently over that time period. And then you look at the early vote. You look at New York 19. You look at Alaska. Every indicator was pointing in this exact same direction. And if you were someone who I think like the narrative generally, maybe around late August, was fairly consistent. If you went to sleep in late August and woke up today, you'd look at the result and be like, okay, but not surprising. But we all suddenly jumped in bought the narrative of these garbage polls. Roe happened too early, right? As a feminist and as a person for whom Roe was just so, even though I saw it coming with SB8 in Texas a year before, when it happened, it was such a profound moment in my life because I thought this could never be taken away from us and all of a sudden it was. I, you know, immediately the next day there were like 10 essays. This won't, this is not, you know, we had all the sort of, bad faith Republicans out there being like, this is not going to move the needle. Voters don't care. And then that after that narrative, we saw this polling. We saw these specials where Democrats overperformed. And then in September, we started with these stories again. Roe happened too early. Voters don't remember. I want to ask you about this idea. It does seem like pundits think voters are morons. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I'll tell you, to your point, I was on CNN at some point in September, and I was talking about what we were seeing in the voter registration data. And I was asked by a a male host, well, but yeah, that was a long time ago. Dobbs was a long time ago. (laughs) Don't you think that's faded by now? Isn't that what we're seeing? And I genuinely didn't know how to answer that question. It's such a bizarre notion But that became the commonly held perception. A lot of it, again, driven by polls. But like we're talking about the polls as if they're some sort of like abstract, you know, 
android, that it's not actual humans making decisions in these polls, that there aren't actual humans pushing this narrative. And then as if there aren't actual humans, the pundits, the media, and frankly, the political professionals whose job it is to take these things and learn from them, but also filter through them as if they shouldn't have been able to look at that and see like, hey, this whole false dichotomy about the economy or inflation versus abortion is a problem. And no one was saying that. Well, not no one was saying that. You were saying that. Many others were saying that. But many more people were saying the opposite. Looks like voters have shifted back. They're just concerned about the economy now. Well, yeah, so many reasons that that framework is problematic, but that became the dominant framework and I think contributed more than anything else to this notion that the red wave was back on. Yeah. I also think, you know, I was on this Twitter spaces last night with John Stewart, who I don't know at all. And he was saying this thing, which I actually thought was quite smart. I don't want to beat up the mainstream media, A, because I'm lucky in that I'm on the opinion side, so I don't have to pretend not to believe in things. But also, I do think that it's been a bad time for the media and people have just been so horrendous. But I do think that there is, you know, the horse race narrative is where a lot of this election coverage is stuck. I share your hesitation in terms of being critical of the media, largely because it is their responsibility to explain what is happening and maybe add some context as to why. And when all they are being fed from these polls and frankly, from political, if, it, if they were only hearing it from Republican campaign operatives, then that's one thing. They have to be more skeptical. But they were hearing this from Democratic campaign operatives, too. Let's be right. real. Not all of them, but enough of them where there is credibility and you look at these bad polls that are showing them something. So to them, the narrative now is the red wave is back on. Voters uh, have forgotten about Dobbs, or at least it's not as important as maybe we thought it was to them right. and their decision making. And therefore, I've got to go out and write stories about why that is and what's happening. And that's generally what happened. And so, like, yeah, it would have been nice if they were digging in a little deeper on the polls. But to expect every political reporter to also be a polling expert is right. not exactly right, fair. Right, right. It, and it is. I mean, I, I just want to point out there were a lot of people on the right uh, pushing the narrative that like because I remember I did a TV hit, I don't know, a couple weeks ago with Medi and we were talking about how like I actually thought voters would vote for democracy. I thought that that would really that they want calm. And, uh, you know, I was being made fun of by people on the right, like, no, people, if they can't, you know, all they care about are gas prices. And, you know, look, gas prices are a serious thing, especially if you drive for a living or you have, you know, if you live very far from where you work. But and they really are. But but ultimately, like the American voter can walk and chew gum. Yes. Yeah, they always do. They always do. And and, and they they pay uh, less attention to a lot of these issues than we think, but in other ways they pay much more attention or they pay attention in different ways because it's what's real to them. It's what's actually breaking through these polls distill it down into such a simplistic framework. And the fact of the matter is when you ask someone to pre predict their own behavior or psychology, there are a lot of problems with that. They're going to tell you what they think is the right answer or what they should say or what they would like to think, you know, the person who they would like to be versus the person who they are. In the end, we're poor predictors of our own psychology and behavior. But if you ask someone if money is important to you or if it's 
disturbing to you that things cost more than they used to, which is basically the framework of saying, is the economy important? Are you concerned about inflation? Everyone's going to say yes. And that's the other issue is that the, the issues that elevate to the top are those that have sort of bipartisan symmetry and responses, meaning Democrats and Republicans both say the economy is important to them. So it elevates to the top of the issue list. Do Democrats and Republicans think the same thing about the economy in terms right, of importance? No. Not at all. Not one bit. And so you're seeing choice. What I was seeing in the data when you go under the hood with these polls was, well, sure, overall choice wasn't as big of an issue in self-report as other issues because almost no Republicans were elevating it because that was the, quote, right answer for them. But when you looked at the voters who Democrats needed to exceed expectations and to win in this election, meaning uh, mobilization targets, Democrats who maybe wouldn't vote unless we persuaded them to, or persuasion targets, voters who could vote Democrat or Republican, Choice was a very salient issue. Yeah. So interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's a thrill to be here. Casey Newton is a tech reporter, a platformer, and the host of the podcast Hard Fork. Welcome to Fast Politics, Casey. Hey, thanks for having me, Molly. Today is Friday. This will air Monday. We will have, it is two weeks, 14 days, right? Or maybe 15 days, 14 days, really, of Elon Musk owning Twitter. Whoa. <laughs> Go. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly like the, the only um, sort of a rational response to the, the two weeks of Elon owning Twitter is just a, a series of confused noises. Right, exactly. <laughs> Did this go the way you thought it would? And if so, wow. Well, I think everything is moving much faster. You know, <laughs> I think it's important to remember that while Twitter had its challenges, it was still an okay business when Elon Musk took it over. You know, it makes billions of dollars a year. It has hundreds of millions of users. And yet somehow within two weeks, you have Elon Musk appearing before the company saying that bankruptcy isn't out of the question. So that feels very fast to me. Let's talk about what happened here. So he he didn't really want to buy the company, and I think he didn't think he was going to have to until he did. One of the, the strangest turns in this story is that after he bought it, he seemed to immediately change his mind. He spent most of the year trying to get out of it, and then some sort of rulings started to go against him in the Delaware Court of Chancery, and he changed his tune, and he said, okay, I want it, and I'm going to close the deal now. And I still don't really think we've got an adequate explanation for how or why that happened. But uh, yeah, then he showed up two weeks ago and started making changes. And he really overpaid for it, right? Like he has $13 billion of personal exposure on this too. Oh yeah. I mean, there's not one person who thought Twitter was worth $44 billion when he actually acquired it, right? Because the tech stocks had all declined uh, so much since then. So Elon Musk really bought it at the peak um, in a way that is uh, amusing to some, I would say. So now we have this situation where he fired half the staff. Basically, this entire time, people have been telling you what's happening as it's going. Tell us what's happened. It really has been chaos, you know. So um, a week ago today, from the day that we're recording this, uh, Elon Musk laid off half of the staff, over 3,500 people, and then less than 24 hours later, started to reach out to some of those same people that had just been laid off and said, actually, um, we might need you back. Mm. 
it, mm-hmm. just a sort of ready fire aim approach to uh, right sizing the company. And of course, right. you can imagine all the turmoil that that caused for you know employees. Did some people come back? I have not spoken to anyone who is in that position. And in fact, a lot of the folks I know after they got that initial notice uh, were looking forward to 90 days of essentially paid vacation. There's this 60 day uh, warm act notice that they get paid out for. And then there is uh, 30 days of severance that they're being offered. So most people would rather take that than work at the new Twitter. And so people are hoping that they're not uh, forced to go take their old jobs back. Elon is also going to have to pay millions of dollars in fees, right? Fees for what? For laying off half the company. And because California has laws that are labor laws, right? Well, so my understanding of that is usually usually the penalty for violating the Warren Act is paying back pay. So that's why all these workers are being given their 60-day notice. Now, there are a couple of class action lawsuits. The lawyers we've talked to don't seem to think they have all that great of a chance of making any real money for anyone but the lawyers. But yeah, the, the real payment, uh, at least at first, is just going to be 60 days of this Warnack notice pay. Let's talk about what Twitter looks like right now. Last night, there was more Twitter carnage. Well, there was certainly a lot of confusion around the ongoing disaster of the verification badge. Explain to those of us who are not like extremely online what the verification badge is, what Elon wanted to do with it, and the chaos that ensued. Yeah, so the verification badge was created in 2009, and it has only ever had one point, which is to say that whoever is tweeting, whether it's a person, a government agency, is who they say they are, right? So when I tweet, you know that it's me, Casey Newton, who's tweeting. Elon thought that that was a little too elitist because (laughs) not everyone could have access to verification, and he wanted to expand that. And by the way, I think that's a good idea. I think Twitter could be better if people could optionally verify their identity, right? Right. But he goes about it in the strangest way imaginable, which is that he takes that same blue check mark that has been synonymous with you are who you say you are for over a decade, and he starts giving it away to anyone who will pay him $8. And he finds himself surprised when people do exactly what you and I would have guessed that they would have done if they were given this feature. So you have people creating uh, you know, fake Tesla accounts, getting verified, and then tweeting jokes about running over pedestrians. You have people creating an Eli Lilly account, getting it verified and and tweeting that insulin is free, right? Right. So, and all of this stuff is like kind of funny. And I think most of the things that we've seen so far are kind of in that zone of like hijinks, but you can imagine much darker and scarier uses of this kind of uh, mischief. Yes, absolutely, completely and utterly true. Now, were there trust and safety people who left last night or was that not true? That is true. So the head of trust and safety on the site, Yoel Roth, resigned from the company. A number of other people who I think of as sort of the watchdogs of Twitter left too. So the chief information security officer, the chief privacy officer, members of various like security and risk teams have all been resigning as well. So some you know, really important uh, roles that the company are now how uh, empty. I feel like that is just like too on the nose, right? Like if you're writing that book, it's Weekend at Bernie's. (laughs) I'm a little bit. I mean, you know, Elon is very actively involved. You know, he is in the office. He does have workers who are there working almost around the clock to sort of respond to his whims and get features into development. So, you know, there are still more than 3,000 people who work at this company and, and they're doing things. Right. The whole thing is just so strange. What happens now? Elon is like very worried about losing money. 
He's got these $8. The verification is gone, but uh, you can't do Twitter blue now. And there's a badge that says official. Yeah. So on Thursday night, in response to uh, all of the criticisms that exactly what people said was going to happen, happened, they paused new signups for blue. So you cannot go get another one of these check marks and they're going to try to figure it out. They also have started to give out this secondary badge called official, which they're giving to accounts that had been verified under the old you are who you say you are policy. And of course, the really funny thing about that is that Musk is recreating the exact sort of elitist like system right. that he used to have. They're just, they just have a different color checkmark now. So the other thing I want to ask you about is Musk has all this debt he needs to service, right? He has his personal exposure and then he has all this debt. He has banks, he has Tesla stock. The Tesla stock is going down. Explain to me what is his sort of idea here about how he's going to make this all work. So what he's telling employees is that he wants to get 50% of revenues coming from subscriptions. So something like that Twitter blue $8 a month thing. You know, I reported earlier this week that he has also talked to his advisors about putting the entire site behind a paywall. So like maybe you browse Twitter for an hour a month, but if you go over that hour, he asks you to pay him. That's what they want to do, but that's a challenge. As you know, for reasons that we've just seen, it's 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 hard to build that, and it's hard to get people to pay eight dollars a month, right? So that's kind of challenge number one. He wants us to pay for the free content we're making. Exactly. If you want to be a part of Twitter, he wants you to uh, essentially subscribe to see it. So it's you know like Netflix for for text or something like that. But you know he has this more immediate problem, Molly, which is that he owns a company that makes eighty nine percent of its revenue from advertising, and several big advertisers have paused all spending on the platform. You know they. They've been looking to him for reassurance, and it is not reassuring when the head of trust and safety quits, when a bunch of your privacy and security people quit, right? The two top ad people in New York quit too, right? That is true, although one of them was lured back after she quit yesterday. Oh, interesting. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, sort of what effect that has. But, you know, Elon, instead of really courting those advertisers, he's just been tweeting about how, you know, they're they're pulling out because, you know, like the woke leftist mob, uh, you know, wants to kill free speech in America or something. And that's also not something that generally makes advertisers want to open up their wallets. So, you know, what happens to ads on Twitter is a big open question here in the next... Uh, few weeks. So he's basically doing everything to mess himself up. Like he's self-destructing. I would say there are a lot of unforced errors and, you know, something that the the Musk team believed when they came into Twitter, according to the people that I've spoken to there, was that most of these Twitter employees were were not that smart, right? There, there was this view of them that they were these um, sort of, you know, coddled uh, leftists who'd just been, you know, paralyzed for years and had never shipped a useful feature and, and had no idea what they were doing. And Elon was going to come in and sort of jumpstart this company. And I think the darkly funny thing about all of this is that Twitter, the same Twitter employees that he so disdained and, and you know, and, and gutted the staff, it was those employees who told him every single thing that was about to happen to him and he ignored them and went ahead anyway. And guess what? It all happened. It's amazing. I actually love Twitter. Oh, me too. Yeah. So as much as like I I don't mind seeing this happen to Elon and it seems like he's, you know, he's sort of like Icarus, right? But I just wonder like, is there a world in which 
things work out here. We are still in the early days of whatever this is. It's possible that Twitter will have a next act, right? Maybe Musk will sort of gradually be willing to cede more control to people who actually know how to run a social network, and he'll kind of go from there. But, you know, if you talk to people who have worked with him at Tesla, as I have, that's not how he runs that company. You know, he has a sort of very intense, you know, micromanagey, whim-based style of management there as well. So it's hard for me to be optimistic, but, you know, I would love to be proven wrong because like you, I love Twitter. Yeah. I know I'm not supposed to ask people to predict the future, but predict the future. I mean, a few things that I can predict, um, a lot of the engineers I've talked to, some are still there, some have left. They think that Twitter is going to have a significant outage. Like they think they've gotten rid of so many technical people who are necessary to operate the site that something is going to go down and it's just going to take a long time to fix. So that's something that I'm sort of looking at. I think Elon is going to continue to tweet about uh, new products and services that are coming. You know, he's we're going to do this and we're going to do that, right? This sort of, you know, much in the same way that Donald Trump used to tweet about new policies. And then just as with Trump, we're going to have to see, well, like, does it actually happen? Is this something that he forgets about in two hours? Or is this something that actually gets built? That's going to have a, a lot of consequences for employees who are going to be learning on Twitter what their jobs are supposed to be, right? Which was another thing that, you know, you'll, you'll remember from the Trump administration. So lots of chaos and lots more to write about and podcast about uh, Twitter in the coming weeks and months, I think. Do you think there's like another Twitter that's going to come along? There's never been a better time to start one. You know, there's this uh, service Mastodon that's existed since right. 2017 that some people are kind of... I have a Mastodon. I actually looked you up on Mastodon. Yeah, I am there. But you haven't tweeted since 2000. You haven't Mastodoned. Yeah. <laughs> it's been, well, I, I logged in the other day and was just sort of like, hey, what's up? But like, I, I haven't been there, you know, since 2017. Some people are getting into it. We'll have to see. I sort of think it'll have a relatively short shelf life. I mean, I... Like to me, this is just right. Like, this is what Silicon Valley is supposed to be good at is just seeing the market opportunity, seeding some, you know, smart team of people and just letting them go do their thing. So, I think we need a new text based uh, social alternative. And, you know, the, the time's right to, to build it, I think. Yeah. Does it end up that the bank owns Twitter in a year? Let's see. A year is a long time. Really hard to say. <laughs> I will say that some employees do think that that the company is on a path to bankruptcy, if for no other reason, uh, that it will let Elon restructure his debt obligations in a way that's advantageous to him. So, you know, I do think that there's a, a significant likelihood that, that something like that might be afoot. Can you talk to us about FTX? Explain it to us like we're stupid, and by we, I mean me. Sure. Well, and so you know, we're we're uh, we're sort of at the very edge of my knowledge here. This isn't my main beat, uh, but we did talk about it uh, this week on uh, my new podcast, Hard Fork, which I do with the New York Times, and my co-host Kevin Roos really sort of helped me understand this. And basically, FTX is a place where you could go and buy cryptocurrencies. So maybe you want some Bitcoin. That's a place where you could go and. If I say that to you, you know, you like me probably think, well, that doesn't seem like that risky of a business, you know. But what seems to have happened is that FTX, what which is owned or created by this guy Sam Bankman Fried, is becoming you know, this major democratic and progressive donor. He also had this other business, uh, Alameda Research, which was a hedge fund, and somehow it seems like customer funds got commingled. So funds that people had put into FTX, you, you never want that. As, it's as the, the classic mistake, Molly. 
As the daughter of a divorce lawyer, you never <laughs> want to touch the stuff, you know, that's in the escrow account. Yeah. 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 So that's basically what seems like happened. You know, it's truly astonishing because FTX was seen as this sort of rock solid crypto business. In fact, it spent most of this year buying up distressed crypto companies that had gotten into trouble themselves. And so everyone saw them as sort of the, the, the savior of the crypto world. And then overnight, the entire thing imploded and Sam Bankman-Fried lost 94 percent of his wealth. Wow. Unbelievable. <laughs> so interesting. I hope you will come back. I would love to come back. Thank you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jong fast. So we're taping this on Sunday night and it seems like one side is going to have a very, very narrow lead over the other in Congress. It's going to be very, very tight. Our moment of fuckery is that, believe it or not, this house is going to be so tight. The idea here is that in this 117th Congress, last the last Congress, um, there were 15 special elections for congressional seats. And so... If Republicans have a one-seat majority or even a two-seat majority, every congressional special election is going to be like Georgia was two years ago. And if Democrats win special congressional elections, then the uh, power in Congress could switch back and forth. And so that will be uh, a lot of fuckery. And so it is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.